Echo Dispatch with Jason Lewis. Hello and welcome back to the Echo Dispatch podcast with me, Jason Lewis, Chief Reporter at the Bournemouth Daily Echo. It has been quite the summer on the south coast with weeks of sunshine leading to heat waves and even a drought. This presented challenges, but not many local sectors had their world thrown upside down like bus operators. After surviving the pandemic and setting eyes on the future, Andrew Wickham and the team at Moorbus mobilised in staggering fashion to aid passengers following the collapse of fellow operator Yellow Buses. Managing Director Andrew has handled all manner of highs and lows in his decades involved in the transport industry. I started our interview by asking him how he would sum up the past few months, which have also seen the buses face antisocial behaviour and congestion issues. I think unique is certainly the word. We've never had one like this one, and I don't think we'll ever see one like this one again. A lot of the issues you talked about, heatwave, congestion, vandalism, we've seen all of that before, and and unfortunately, other than perhaps heatwave, we'll be seeing it all again in the future as well, and I'm sure there'll be another heatwave. But what has made this one really different is the yellow buses, the failure of yellow buses and what what we've done to replace those services. And... That is pretty unique, not just in Bournemouth, but in the country. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll touch on that in a bit more depth as we go through the podcast. So now, like, around 18 months, roughly, since we started to see the last set of lockdown restrictions lift in their in their phases, how are sort of pasture levers comparing now to sort of pre-pandemic? It, it's going pretty well, actually. And, and we measure pre-pandemic. We always sort of looked at our performance, mainly against what we budgeted, and then a little look at what happened last year. But this time now, the, the big measure is against pre, pre-COVID. So when lockdown started, about a week after it started, we ended up on 10% of our normal passenger levels and we were running a full service, so our costs were unchanged and it was a pretty scary time to be running the bus company. Then passenger levels started to slowly increase. Then we had the sort of October, it got to really, it got to really nice level in October 20. We then had that sort of scare of, was it the Kent variant that started then, I think? And the numbers start to go back down again. We then had the January lockdown and they went right, right back down. Then they unlocked in, whatever it was after January, sort of April time, I think it was, and the numbers start to go, go up. So where we are at the moment in terms of like for like, and obviously we can't really count our new routes as part of that, we were on, before the failure of yellow buses, on about 90% of pre-COVID passengers. We're not quite running the full level of service we ran before COVID. We're not running the M1 and M2 quite as frequently at the moment. And we're not running the night bus network that we ran before. So I'm quite pleased with 90%. That splits into commercial passengers. That's people who pay a fare, um, one way or another, being in the high 90s and concessionary passengers that's old and disabled people who get a free pass being quite a lot lower and still generally in the sort of high 70s so there's a bit of a split there and there is some split between routes but overall around 90 percent and we think that's one of the strongest numbers in the country in actual fact yeah i was just saying i guess you don't it's hard to know what other companies going, but obviously it's part of Go Ahead. You can compare it to your other. Yes, I certainly know what's happening elsewhere within Go Ahead, and yeah, we're we're up at the top with those sort of recovery numbers. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. And just briefly, you mentioned the, that first period when it went to like ten percent of all numbers with the first lockdown. Seems a very long, long time ago now. How challenging was that? Just overnight to see it go like that in your role as manager director, and also 
for more buses as an operator? I think I, I think for all of us, it was very challenging because it was new and we've never dealt with anything like that before. We dealt with bad weather and every last sort of thing that you can throw at buses, but we've never dealt, we've never dealt with that. And I think for our frontline employees, drivers in particular, who are facing the public, it was frankly terrifying because nobody knew what the transmissibility was of COVID and what would happen and was it breathing over somebody or was it touching a handrail or being in the same room or having the windows open and no one knew any of this stuff we know you know we know much better now but we didn't know then on a personal level you know I don't normally face face passengers and I've, I've got to say to start with it was pretty scary and from, from a point of view of the future of the company and I think after about the first 10 days it was without doubt the most depressing and dispiriting period in my career because we had to reduce service levels in accordance with instructions from the government. The government did give us a lot of money to keep running as they did with all bus companies, but they wanted a lower level of service to discourage travel but still make travel available for uh, key workers. And you know, I've spent my career trying to get more people using buses and in particular, my Tom is managing director here, which has started in 2011. We've had great success in that and we bucked the national trend. Um, Bournemouth and Paul had the highest level of passenger growth in the country in, in, in the last few years. And we were literally taking all that apart, dismantling it and throwing it in the skip. And it was an utterly, utterly depressing time. We had no idea how long it would go on for, whether we would recover, we, we were cancelling jobs for people. We were recruiting. You know, we've been partway through recruiting people, and we ceased that. We had a graduate trainee lined up. We normally do that, so we have a succession of managers. We, we made that person redundant before they'd even started, and it was all about thinking how are we going to survive smaller and how are we going to cope with that. In the end, it's gone the other way, but at the time it, it was horrible. The, the amount of work that people here put in for that. To do that, we have you know, a department of people who plan our routes and obviously each driver operates the schedules and times and fixed duties. And we were changing those sometimes on a two-weekly basis. We normally change our times twice a year. You know, on the behest of the government, we, when we reduce the services right down, we straight away wanted to make sure we weren't leaving key workers behind. They were getting in touch and saying, can we have an earlier arrival at, an earlier arrival at RBH on the 14 or things like that. And we had to redo the timetables. And so our poor guys who do that sort of work were just flat out forever. And, you know, I think they're only just about catching their breath now, to be honest. Really, really difficult. But bus people are pretty resilient. And and in a way, some people quite like a crisis. And and we sort of got through it. And I think we come out stronger than we went into it. Was there ever a time you touched on how, especially those first few weeks where you thought, the future of the company could be in doubt. Oh, yes. I mean, when lockdown was first announced, as I say, our passengers went to 10% of our normal level, of our normal number. We don't get vast subsidies, so most of the income we collect comes from people paying bus fares to us. Um, a big chunk comes for another large chunk, albeit much smaller, comes from the money we reimburse for carrying concessionary pass holders. And at one point, I think we had about two months 
of money left in the company before we went bust. It was utterly terrifying. To be fair to the government, who often, like most governments, talk a good job about transport but don't actually do one, they did on this occasion really come up with the goods and, and kept us going, paid us to keep these services running for key workers and, and kept the industry afloat. And you touched on those difficult things of laying people off, even people before they got a job, and that must be just horrible for someone in your position to be forced into that. It's nothing that you've done wrong or the company's done wrong. You've been, you've got no option. Uh, uh, absolutely. And the, I mean, the only people we laid off or made redundant were effectively people in the very early stages of bus driver training who weren't allowed to train people to start with because it was two people in a close proximity and this person who was going to join us as a graduate. Um, in terms of our existing substantive employees, I'm, I'm delighted that we didn't make anybody redundant at all. Um, obviously, when the services declined, we did make use of the government's furlough scheme because we didn't need all our drivers or, or back office staff or mechanics. So we did make use of that. And we were very careful how we did that because these guys are on the front line. And so we made sure that we furloughed our most vulnerable employees first, those that are clinically at greatest risk, and actually we sort of got through all of them and then it was a bit of a put your hands up if you want yeah. to be furloughed but lots of people were quite keen to stay working but no thankfully there were no redundancies as a result of it other than these very few people and in actual fact when the storm passed we um, went first back to the driver trainees and I think all of those actually came back and, and re, you know, as if it was a sort of a, just a bit of a long very long holiday and recommenced their training so they're with us now and the graduate we actually identified, we went back to that individual as well, but they'd found something oh, else, unfortunately. Wow. But yeah, no, no one was left out of work. And you've touched on already there, the people in the back office that potentially even I don't think about, the ones who actually, these routes just don't come out of nowhere, the timetables don't come out of nowhere. They don't. The mechanics, all the people at the depot the, and the drivers. Just a word on what they've done really in these last couple of years. The, the, they are always fantastic. And I think actually, the last few weeks really demonstrated how fantastic they are in a different way. But no, people, as I say, and there was a lot of fear around. People didn't know what the situation was. People just came into work and they got on with it. And we did everything we could to make our employment, our company, COVID secure. So where we had engineers on shifts, we, we split them into separate teams to minimise contact. We had an, an, spent a million pounds a year extra on cleaning for, for COVID, we actually had buses sampled by Public Health England for cleanliness at one point or for the presence of live COVID. We put up the, the screens, the temporary screens on buses between drivers and the public. Our buses traditionally have never had those, any sort of screens, but, but we did it because of the risk of infection. Those screens are still there and we will take them away when we think it's safe to do so. But no, people just came in and they got on with it. They did an absolutely, absolutely fantastic job yeah. under really not difficult day-to-day -day circumstances but difficult difficult situation with worry and some people had their workloads massively increased because of it yeah 100% I'm sure all the passengers were very grateful that they could still we, we had lots of really work. good we had lots of really good comments actually it's what we've done yeah and, and moving forward to very much more recent events obviously it's difficult to speak on what's necessarily on the exact circumstances of another operator but we're a few weeks on now is it strange to no longer have yellow buses around the conurbation having been there alongside them for so long? Yeah, yes it is. I mean, I, I first started working in Bournemouth and Poole in 2003 
Um, I was, then was away for a couple of years in, in 20, uh, 2009, 2010, 2011. But yes, it, it, but it was. I think for people who grew up here, where it had been sort of yellow buses forever, and actually our buses have changed colours. They went from red to, to the colour they are now, blue and red. So they've changed. But yellow buses were a real fixture of Bournemouth. And they've been around for 120 years. They were a council-owned operator to start with, you know, for most of their life. My career started with council and operator in Brighton, very similar sort of ownership structure that was then privatised as well. So, on a, yeah, on a personal level, I was really sad to, to, to see them go because it's quite a big part of the, of the town's history and the trams they ran, the trolley buses back in the day and just all gone overnight. We reported on how more bus took on those routes following yellow buses collapse. Another challenge in a different way to the pandemic, potentially going the other way around to put more services on. Can you put into words the effort that's been involved in that? I know you've spoken to us in the paper already about it briefly, but yeah, what did this really involve? Can the, you put into, oh, the effort that people here put in at all levels was absolutely phenomenal. And, and even for those that you wouldn't ordinarily perhaps think about. So our longer serving drivers were working on, throughout this, our normal services kept running and changed some of those parallel yellow buses services so as yellow buses were failing we started to get more passengers lots of queries as a management team we were completely fixated on getting these new services up and running so those you know our existing group of people and, and engineers alike just got on with it without complaint without sort of question and, and no issues with that in order to, to run a bus service there are three things you really need perhaps in the order of easiest in which they are to get hold of you you need the buses you need the premises to run your buses from and you need people to drive them and maintain them and, and back office people so in terms of the buses themselves we do have a reserve fleet of buses that we keep for you know eventu any eventuality and yellow buses isn't the first operator that's failed while i've been in our area we had one in salisbury a few years ago we had one in Southampton a few years ago but none on the scale of yellow buses and yellow buses is the largest bus company failure since 1990 and probably the second largest ever to be honest so it's a, it's a real big big event a massive thing that happened so we do keep a we do keep a reserve fleet of buses and, and timing was on our side because we run the unibus network on behalf of Bournemouth University which requires 15 buses and our contract with the university is that we replace the fleet every five years. The fleet was due for replacement this year. We had the new buses slightly early and um, we wanted to get them for the summer. We didn't quite get them in time for the summer, but they were all arriving in, in July. So at drop of a hat, we had 15 extra brand new buses, good to go anywhere, double-deckers, really versatile. So we had those as an added bonus. And on top of that, we found about another 20 vehicles my own fleet around some locally some from from salisbury some from southampton and got those down here so the bus side was easy but again those the vehicles the, the depots in salisbury and eastleigh that donated those vehicles effectively the vehicles weren't in regular use we had to get them serviced we had people working extra hours yeah we had a guy in swindon getting vehicles ready for us from all up you know all around all corners of the company and they just did it without question in terms of the premises, that was very easy this time. Often that's a really difficult component. But we rebuilt our depot in Bournemouth, which is just opposite Bournemouth Station in 2019. It was in, we'd acquired it just recently before that, and it was in really, really poor condition. 
we raised the ground and started again with a really modern facility that importantly gave far more parking space because we made much more efficient use of the space. And that extra space meant we, had, we have and had and have space to park everything. So that was one massive issue we didn't have to worry about. And then obviously the other component you need is, is drivers. For each bus you see on the road, that, you need around three drivers for each bus. Um, not at any one time, but because there's generally you need your buses are out for 20 hours a day, which is obviously far longer than one person would work. Buses run for seven days a week, so we need to cover people's days off. So it's still around two and a half to three drivers per bus you need. So we obviously, you know, realised there'd be a large number of people at yellow buses who would be redundant. And so we mobilised what I think is the biggest ever recruitment, certainly bus recruitment thing, um, to happen. And we rented a load of rooms up at the Village Hotel the day after Yellow Buses ceased trading. So they ceased trading on the Thursday. They saw that the administrator spoke to the employees, Yellow Bus former employees, on the Friday morning. And then we were inviting people up and we made quite a show of it, if you like. And we didn't know how many people would come. And on the Friday morning, we found that 30 people virtually were queuing outside when we opened up. And then in the course of the day, about another 60, 70 turned up. And by the end of that Friday, we'd recruited just over 100 people, most of them drivers, but also some engineering people, some cleaners, a customer services person. And that was the number we needed to get the services running. We brought in people from all over the company we had an operation of people up there such that we were conducting five interviews at a time in different rooms. So when a person turned up and it was open to anybody, not just people from yellow buses, although clearly they were the, the vast block body entirely, you know, they probably represented all the people that turned up. We had a sort of, a, the first point was a receptionist. The second point was someone who checked their paperwork. I, they had the correct driving license and taught them to work in the UK, which as an employer we're obligated to, to check on. Um, the next stage was the interview. Um, the third stage was being told the result of the interview. Sadly, not everybody met our standards and not all were successful. But those that were, then went on to the next stage where um, we sort of did the paperwork for them. The next stage was the company induction scheme, which people don't normally have until they've actually joined us as such. But we had to do it quickly, so we did a a, a very sort of abbreviated but thorough version of our company induction scheme. Once they completed that, they then went to, to Graham, who's one of normally one of our supervisors in the New Forest, and Graham gave them their duties for the next day and the following week, so people knew when to, to turn up. Those that then started work on the Saturday came in about half an hour before their normal start time to Bournemouth Depot. We then gave them the depot induction, which is very safety focused and where things are. They did that for half an hour. Obviously, because they'd worked for Yellow Buses previously, they all knew the routes, which was saved days and days of training. And we used the same sort of ticketing equipment as Yellow Buses, so that was fairly easy for them to pick up on. Um, we ran a full service on the Saturday. We didn't know any people we'd get, and it was really nice partway through the set to Friday to, to speak to the local authority, BCP, and said, the six buses that you have on contract, we can take those as well, and we start running those as well which we did. So it was absolutely incredible effort by people here. So we've already talked about those who weren't directly involved in it. Those that were involved in it, you know, changed their plans at the drop of a hat. A lot of them worked on the Saturday, which is an all day off, but they just, you know, no 
wasn't even a discussion. They just, yeah, yeah, we work on a Saturday because we did a second recruitment down on Saturday. Some more people turned up. Then, yeah, our engineers, Bournemouth Depot went from 40 buses to 70 buses. We had engineers getting all these buses ready, getting them ready to go in the morning, and it just all worked. Staggering It, it all worked. A stag- yeah, absolutely. I suspect probably the biggest mobilisation of that type in the history of the UK bus industry. And to put it in context, we had two days notice. Yellow buses went into administration the week before that, and we did suspect sometime before that that things weren't going terribly well. So it wasn't two days, but it was two or three days of really getting it going. By comparison, bus routes in London are tendered and they change operator occasionally. Some of the largest bus routes in London of that sort of size, and when, it, when that work is awarded to a new operator, they get about nine months' notice. Yeah. And we did this in a week. It's just mm. so, so, that absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing. And what was really amazing was on day one, on the Saturday, every bus ran, every bus had the correct destination so people knew where it was going. Also, behind the scenes, we had five teams that were out across Bournemouth and Paul and Christchurch updating the bus stop. Yeah. So every bus stop had the correct times in it. There's still lots of yellow buses, bus stops around, and lots of yellow boxes with the, with the yellow cases with timetables in, but they've all got the correct information. There is some yellow buses sort of advertising around, we need to, to get around to removing, but there's nothing that's misleading, no times are incorrect. And we also printed off enough timetables that there was a supply of printed timetables on every bus on day one, and hopefully there still is. And of course, all our web and app was updated for it as well. I was going to say, I look at a picture over there of an old bus with a conveyor belt sort of uh, yeah. name for the destination. Obviously, could, it's now electronic. No, bus, no, you couldn't have done it then. Electronic ones cost a bit more, but they did give you a lot more flexibility. Yeah. And again, that was all in for day one. The Echo Dispatch with Jason Lewis. All motorists across the Bournemouth, Christchurch and Paul area can speak chapter and verse about the area's congestion woes. More bus drivers know this all too well themselves. It's clearly not a simple question, but I asked Andrew what he thinks can be done to tackle the problem. Well, it's immensely frustrating. So we took on the main routes and the local authority contracts on day one. We didn't take over the open top bus that runs along between Alan Chime and Alan Chime and um and Hengistbury Head to start with because that's a tourist thing, it's a bit less important. But when we worked out we had enough people and we could get enough buses, we did that the following week. It started on Sunday, within three hours of it starting, the buses couldn't reach Boscombe Pier because of people queuing up for the car park and, and parking all over the place. And yeah, that was so frustrating because again, people have moved heaven and earth to do this. We went and bought some buses. I bought one bus back myself for it as an open top bus. Yeah, it was all ready to go. The mechanics got the vehicles ready and this, this happens. Yeah, it's not new and it isn't just Bournemouth. There does seem to be something around there where people are just almost less law abiding. And I think years ago, people wouldn't have deliberately parked on the grass verge or parked on a double yellow line and now I think it's almost seen as an occupational hazard that I guess you know you bring a, your family a car of four or five people going from London and it's 25 quid to pay the parking fine if you if you pay within a set time and it's almost a part of the cost in you know, five or ahead it's part of the cost of the day and that's a terrible attitude that people have so 
you know, I'm not critical of, yes, BCP could employ more parking wardens if they could recruit them, but I'm not really critical of BCP because all this stuff's only good after the offence has happened. And what needs, what needs to be is something in place that deters people from doing this in the first place. And frankly, the only thing I can see that is going to do that is harsher penalties for it. So, you know, if, if by parking a double yellow line you lost your car and got your car crushed, people wouldn't park on a double yellow line. Now, I'm not advocating that, but I think if fines were significantly higher, it would make a difference. And I think there's a big difference between somebody overstaying their welcome in a car park or on a parking meter, mm. wrong though that is, and subject to a fine so as though that should be, I think that's a big difference between, between that and people parking on double yellow lines and on verges and things where it's blocking the road up. And that's not just for buses, for a bus can't get through, a fire engine can't get through, for sure, because they're the same sort of size. And I think, yes, those sort of fines for parking where you're not allowed to park should be much higher and set at a level that it's prohibitive for people to do it. And I would suggest that probably needs to be hundreds of pounds, yes. something that really hurts. And then people wouldn't do it. This isn't being anti-car. People might say, oh, you're a bus company, you would say you want to make motoring difficult. No, no, we don't want to make motoring difficult. All we're asking is everyone keeps to the rules. The rules are common to everybody. We wouldn't go and park up a bus or a coach on a double yellow somewhere just because it suited us. You know, that's easier than buying a bus depot. We just park on the street. We, we don't do that. Most people don't do that. And it's a small number of very really inconsiderate and selfish people who are causing these problems for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like there hopefully is a bit of momentum, but it's obviously got to change nationally, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, yes. And certainly BCP have been saying that they're, they're lobbying government in order to get this changed. I'm not quite sure what they're really doing, but we've been very clear and say, so, you know, yes, we support that. Please involve us. We can give lots of real life examples to where this, this problem this is causing. And we, you know, we need to get the rules altered. I believe the Fines the local authority can issue are limited by central, you know, by statute, by central government, and that's what needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. And again, talking about a minority, obviously, school holidays, and unfortunately, in, in a couple of areas at different times, we've seen issues of buses being targeted with objects thrown at them and smashed windows. Aside from the cost impact that has on you as a bus company, obviously, you work very close to the police to try and resolve these issues, but. Also, what impact does that really have on the driver? Because I can't really imagine if I'm driving my car along, what it'd feel like if someone threw something at my car window. I think and this driver's responsible for their passengers as well. They, they are, and I think it's pretty scary for drivers and passengers who are on, on the bus. Clearly, something could end up going through a windscreen, you know, which could, could mean the driver loses control of the bus and that could lead to fatalities, or the driver could be killed. At best, it means the service is disrupted, we have to you know, take the bus out of service and, and get the glass repaired, and there's a cost of that, that is going to be passed on through fares, unfortunately, because we have no other way of raising money, yeah, which is unfortunate. And it has a pretty sort of grim effect if you're sitting in the seat where the object comes, you know, come and breaking the glass. You know, the glass makes a lot of noise when it breaks. And, you know, I know children will be children, and, you know, you do get people who get a bit naughty sometimes but yeah, that could be your grandmother on the bus that's sitting there and, and could well be if it's, in, it's running through the place you live yeah that could be a family member yeah your own grandmother who's who's terrified by by what's happened so just please don't do it it's, it's you know it's childish it's irresponsible 
And yeah, just think you'll be your own family on that's the bus. That's the thing to always think in a scenario like that is you don't know who's going to be on that bus. Absolutely. Exactly. For a bit, quick bit of research, I've made it. You've been involved in various sort of transport firms, be it coaches, buses, for more than 30 years now. What have been sort of the biggest changes in that time? I look around when there's pictures of some older buses on, on walls. Other than obviously how the buses are slightly changing how they look. Um, what's been the main changes for you? It has. Well, I've done 35 years now. So, so when I started in 1980, I've done more than that because I. I studied transport at university and worked for a bus company during, the, during my holidays. So I've had slightly more than that, but 35 years continuous. What's changed in that time? A lot of things haven't changed, I've got to say. So what hasn't changed is of trying to run a bus service at reasonable fares at the best quality you can. Um, that hasn't changed. The fact that we have to stand on our own two feet commercially hasn't changed. I came into the industry just when it changed from sort of being nationalised and regulated to the system we have now as a far more commercial sort of operations. I've only ever really known that. I just was sort of dabbing my feet in it before then. Um, I guess, so in a way, it is very similar. And 35 years ago, I would have completely recognised what I'm doing now. I think the te- what has changed hugely is technology. So mobile phones were just getting going 35 years ago. I remember we had a mob, we got one of the first mobile phones for our engineers. I became a manager of a little depot quite early on in my career. And we used to do commercial vehicle repairs. And it was very frustrating. We send an engineer out to, to one place. They'd then come fix whatever the lorry was, come back into the depot. Oh, there's another one broken down, you know, two miles from where you were, up you go. The engineers liked their technology and they were really keen to get these mobile phones. And this was something that was plumbed into a Land Rover, you know, as they say, size of a house brick. And they were so proud of this when they got it. They weren't quite so delighted when we kept them out. And <laughs> it was like, okay, you've got a job in Hayward Seas, now go across the Burgess Hill, now, now you've got another one for you just down the road. So I didn't think it was much fun then, but yeah, the whole mobile thing is from mobile phone thing has changed. The whole internet, you know, didn't exist in '87, and in a way, in lots of ways, to run in buses that makes no difference. But the two big differences it does make, and phones, are one, it's much easier for us to get information out. Everything was printed timetables before. Now lots of lots of bus companies say print doesn't matter anymore. We're just doing web. That's absolute nonsense. Lots of people still want printed timetables. We print thousands, tens of thousands of timetables every year and they all go, people want them. So we're still gonna keep doing that. But it does make getting information out there easier. On the debit side, if you're a bus company, what the internet has allowed is home shopping and it's a lower footfall on the high street. You only have to look at some of our town centers to see what they were like compared with 35 years ago and indeed more recently than that. And that's not good for us. Um, buses have moved on a long way. So when I started out, there was no such thing as an accessible bus. There was no bus unless it was a welfare vehicle that could accommodate a wheelchair or you could, you know, you could board whilst in a wheelchair. The idea of making vehicles accessible was just starting then. That was more about partially sighted people and different coloured handrails and sort of shallower steps for people who were a bit less mobile. But the whole sort of idea of a flat floor, low floor bus only really started in the sort of mid to late 90s. So that's been a complete revolution since I started. And the other thing that's completely changed is the whole situation with data. So now I can look on my phone and see 
how much revenue you've collected so far today, like that. Previously, back in 87, a lot of that stuff was still done manually with manual ticket machines, you know, completely mechanical, and it took weeks to find that information out, even if you ever did. So that that's really changed. So surprise, surprise, what's changed is the whole sort of IT thing. But other than that, congestion, antisocial behaviour, making sure we've got enough drivers, making sure we've got enough passengers. I remember all that stuff when I first started out, so it's not new. And if we were to speak again in 12 months' time, what would be one or two things that you'd like to say, this has changed since I last spoke to you, Jason? Right, what I would like to be able to say is, and I'm confident I will be able to say this, that the network that we are, have on offer in Bournemouth and Poole is far more attractive to people than it is now. The routes that previously were operated by yellow buses we took on at very, very short, I mean, you know, very short notice. All we could do was to copy yellow buses' timetables, often at a reduced frequency compared with what was there before. What I would like to say is in 12 months' time, everything's operating more reliably, and I'm pretty confident I'd better say that because yesterday we've put two extra buses into the system in Bournemouth to make the services more reliable because they get held up with traffic. So they should be more reliable. We'll have far more of our publicity, our marketing material, our information will be completely joined up then. It's still a bit of the old network and the new network are separate. That will be integrated from next month actually, so it will look the same. Hopefully might have updated the bus fleet a little bit in the area. And I'm hoping that that will be just the start of a further growth in the uses of, bus, of buses. I think some of the other buses has got quite unreliable towards the end and we and lost passengers. We need those passengers back. We need the buses full. Um, so I'm pretty confident that what we would be offering will be better. And I'd love better sit here and say we got on top of the illegal parking and we're making inroads into the congestion problem we face with our partners at BCP and at Dorset Council. Now, we'd love to be able to do that and I very much hope I'll be able to. Well, so a good note to end on. It sounds like you're very positive for the future, Andrew. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That concludes this episode of the Echo Dispatch. It definitely seems like Morbus has a strong footing to press on through the winter and get passengers moving across the conurbation. Hopefully the government can step in and help by increasing those fines for illegal parking. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast on many of the major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Amazon Music. Any suggestions or requests on who you would like to hear from in the series are welcome in an email to jason.lewis at bournemouthecho.co.uk. Thanks for listening and bye for now. The Echo Dispatch with Jason Lewis.